Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your word you reveal to us what is, what is true. Um, what is true about yourself, but also what is true about our, ourselves. We are a mystery to ourselves. And we're thankful that you, you, you teach us our, our potential. You teach us about uh, our value. You teach us about who you've made us to be in Christ. As we look to, to see Christ in, in, in this story, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts to, to see him and to love him. And as we come to participate in the sacrament that he has given to us, to eat his body and drink his blood, that we would be further confirmed and strengthened in him. We pray you do this to your glory, for your sake and for your name, for the sake of your church. You would strengthen the saints who have gathered here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we've, uh, we've had the opportunity to, to hear the gospel according to Second Samuel. Nowhere is the name of, of Jesus mentioned, but it's his story nonetheless. David and Mephibosheth may have preceded Jesus' earthly ministry on the timeline of history, but Jesus far outshines them in glory. He's, he is the priority of Scripture. And the significance of, of Jesus' accomplishments turn everything, even those things that preceded him in time, into an echo. He sounded the note that would change the world forever, and the echo of it resonated out from him. Whispers of Jesus can be heard throughout the Old Testament, in places like 2 Samuel, where the gospel was being told before Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. His life is the template for the history that preceded him. And 2 Samuel 9, therefore, tells the story of the gospel, tells Jesus' story, but with imperfect stand-ins like David and Mephibosheth. And their imperfections make us long for the model in whose mold they were made. Therefore, when we read about David and Mephibosheth, we look through them and beyond them to Jesus, the one of whom these men are a faint echo. The gospel according to 2 Samuel begins at a time when there was a transfer of power from one king, the now deceased Saul, to another, the ruddy and handsome warrior king, David. In these sorts of situations, there's typically a, a scramble for power before a king is crowned. And the situation in Israel when Saul died was no different. David was crowned king of Judah, which consists of the two southern tribes. But Saul's sons began to fight and kill one another for possession of the 10 northern tribes. There was an assassination, a betrayal, 
revenge. And in the end, David ended up being crowned the king of a united Israel, all 12 tribes. At the end of chapter 8, we're told that when the dust settled, David ruled over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. But when chapter 9 begins, the passage read for you just a second ago, and David is asking if there's still anyone left of the house of Saul, it would appear, without reading to the end of that verse, that he's doing what most newly installed kings did in the ancient world. They would hunt down any heir of the previous king who might have a claim to the throne and have them executed in order to eliminate the possibility of any coup or, and, to, and to secure their reign. Verse 1, David asks, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? Then he states the reason for his question. David intends to show kindness to the remaining heirs of his enemy because of his love for one of the members in Saul's family, Saul's son Jonathan who had died in battle alongside his father. Jonathan was a, a member of Saul's family, his son, but he and David were best friends. And his love, David's love for Jonathan was so great that he was willing to do the unthinkable, to have compassion on any remaining heirs belonging to the house of Saul. Jonathan's death and, and David's love for him interrupted the typical cycle of violence and death, and introduced into the king's heart the possibility for compassion. And so the search was on to find an heir to Saul's house. It turns out that there was a remaining heir, a grandson. Mephibosheth was his name, and he was none other than one of Jonathan's sons. He likely survived the, the murderous competition among Saul's heirs that followed his death because Mephibosheth was a threat to no one. He was crippled in both of his feet and unable to walk. He was too weak and vulnerable to be a king. So nobody bothered with him. They left him alone. Still, though, when David summoned him to appear before him in Jerusalem, Mephibosheth feared for his life. He knew what kings did to heirs of former kings. So he fell on his face for David. And the text tells us that he did obeisance, meaning he, he showed deference. He, he expressed great respect to David. He understood well his position before the king. He was, as he describes himself in verse 8, a dead dog. He had no hope apart from the off chance that David might deal mercifully with him. And we know that mercy was precisely David's intention because we're privy to the disclosure of his purpose in searching for Saul's heir in verse 1. But Mephibosheth never could have imagined what awaited him when David began to speak to him. He expected and deserved death, dead dog that he was. But instead, he was granted life. He expected wrath, 
but he was shown mercy. David spoke to this pitiful man lying prostrate on the floor before him, crippled in both of his feet, and he told him, do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table. Mephibosheth was expecting destruction, and instead he experienced restoration. The king pitied him and showed him mercy. And so we are told in verse 13 that Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always, always ate at the king's table. He was like one of the king's sons, an enemy by birth, but a son by grace. And then, just so you don't forget the state of this man and the great grace of the king, the story ends with the reminder that Mephibosheth was lame in both his feet. It was a remarkable showing in the life of David the king. He certainly was capable of some indefensible behavior. In a short while, he will use his power to force a married woman into an adulterous relationship and then murder her husband when she becomes pregnant with his child. But in this moment, in this moment, David shows us the great capacity he had for compassion and love. And looking through him and beyond him, we see another king an heir of David's even, who bore in his heart this same capacity for love and compassion for his enemies. This man did not inherit David's capacity for grievous sin or any of his corrupting desires. He was a king, and yet he served his people, using his power to cultivate their flourishing in life. Looking through and beyond David, it's Jesus we see. And looking through and beyond Mephibosheth, we see ourselves crippled and lame because of our sin. We are, each and every one of us, born as enemies of God on account of our fallen nature we bear, that we bear in our souls. And the guilt we have inherited in our first parents' rebellion against God. We're not all physically impaired as Mephibosheth but we are impaired in our desires and in our will. We pursue and love things that destroy us. Rebellion is in our bones, and we don't even realize it. We're like Peter, who's told by Jesus in the gospel reading read for you earlier, that he will desert and deny Jesus, and as predicted, does so. But when Jesus tells him that this is going to happen, he denies this capacity for self-preservation and sin in himself. Even though all become deserters, I will not, Peter told Jesus. And again, vehemently this time, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. But when Jesus is suffocating on a Roman cross, they're nowhere to be found. They're gone. 
the overconfidence in ourselves, the underestimation of our capacity for sin is endemic to human beings. We'd be better served if we just admitted the truth that we are dead dogs, deserving of God's just displeasure with us. Psalm 24 poses the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The question it's asking is who can approach God? And the answer it provides is this, those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. I don't fit that description, do you? The only way we can approach God is in the fashion of Mephibosheth, by throwing ourselves prostrate on the floor before him and praying that he will have mercy on us for the sake of someone else. Just as David had mercy on Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. If God deals with us as we are, then we're without any hope for forgiveness or restoration. But God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Instead, he pardons us because of his great love for a member of our human family, Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh. He bore none of our guilt, neither did he inherit a broken nature. He was the perfect human being precisely because he was God. And on account of God's love for Jesus, he pardons, forgives, and welcomes us to his table. He treats us like his children. We're enemies by birth, but sons and daughters by grace. And he has given us this meal in order to communicate that grace to us. For the food we eat here provides greater nourishment than any other meal you will ever eat on earth, which is digested and passes through your body. This meal fills not your stomach, but your soul when it is eaten in faith. When we eat here by faith, we eat the body and blood of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And in our eating, we are both reminded and strengthened in the grace of his life. Through this meal, we identify with Jesus and he identifies with us, willing to enter into us. And all the benefits of our relationship are communicated and on display. For God no longer looks on us and sees dead dogs, men and women crippled by their sin, but he sees Christ in us. And he is moved to compassion and love. On account of Christ in us, God now looks on us and he declares, my child with whom I am well pleased. It's not because we've ceased to sin, but because in Christ, we have ceased to be measured by our sin. The grace of Jesus Christ is greater than all our sin. He's pleased, therefore, to have such dead dogs eating at his table. Which is why this meal is cause for celebration. Not for a somber reflection on our sins. God himself is not looking at our sins when he invites us to this table. So why do we wallow in our guilt when we eat this glorious meal that he serves us? This meal is a reminder and participation 
and the grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's an act of praise. In many Christian traditions, this meal, which we typically call the Lord's Supper or communion, is called the Eucharist, a Greek word that means give thanks. We're giving thanks as we eat this meal. That the gospel echoed by David and Mephibosheth has become true of us in Christ. God looks on those who have set their faith in Jesus, and he says the same thing to us that David said to Mephibosheth. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of me. For I will show you kindness for the sake of my son Jesus, and I will restore to you all that you have lost. He restores our nature, he, and he makes us capable of humility and obedience when before our wills were driven by pride and rebellion, he makes us alive. We might remain dogs for continuing to sin, but we are alive dogs in Christ. And one day we will be glorious, but one day we will even cease to sin. And on that day we will feast with Christ in glory and forever sing the praises of his grace. For truly, he has dealt kindly with us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.